from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's ready for sweater weather. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Silberg. And today's title is Autumn Leaves. <laughs> hey, Chad. <laughs> hey, Mike. Well, here we are recording this on the last day of summer. We are. Yeah, heading into the autumn. Mm-hmm. Probably most of our listeners, I'm guessing, are going to be listening to this at a point when the leaves are starting to turn. And so I thought that might be kind of a fun topic to explore, the whys and the hows and the to what ends. Yeah. So turn off your football <laughs> and tune into Crisscrossing Science. Well, now let's not get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, why why do leaves turn brown? The question why, maybe we should talk about that for just a moment. The question why in biology can be answered at a number of different levels, Okay, kind of from like the proximate, what are the cues that cause something to happen to the process by which something happens? That can be a, you know, a, a why kind of question mm, to okay. the, what is the overall evolutionary or adaptive significance? Kind of an ultimate kind of why question. I think I understand what you're getting at, that asking why could trigger lots of different responses from a biologist. And so you broke them down. You said one way might be like, why do whales migrate south for the winter? You know, what is actually causing that to happen? Or you might ask, why does something happen? You're saying, well, here's the actual mechanism that causes a thing. And then the last one would be, well, why would they do it at all? Why do we stand up straight or something like that, right? Is there like yeah. an evolutionary reason for it? So, so you're saying, so what triggers it, what's the mechanics of it, and what is evolutionarily a benefit? possibly. Yeah. And I think different biologists and maybe different people generally focus on different of those levels and an answer at one of those levels might be completely fulfilling for one person while it might leave somebody else feeling like, well, okay, that's the process by which it happens, but I want to understand the point. So So we're going to try to fulfill everybody today. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's (laughs) going to leave here feeling like just they're in a warm embrace of a nice winter coat or nice. a nice a nice fall sweater. So okay, so let's start out with the most proximate of the whys here, okay. getting at the what kicks off the events here. And for most deciduous plants, I should say, these are plants that drop their leaves at a certain time of year. Mm-hmm. It's a change in day length that causes them to do so. Uh, you can imagine a number of candidate environmental cues that vary through the season, things like temperature. But it seems like for most plants, it's the number of hours of daylight and the number of hours of dark at night that mm-hmm. cause them to initiate this process. Can I ask a pedantic question? Please. So you said deciduous trees are ones that drop their leaves at some point. Mm-hmm. Is the opposite of that just conifer or? Yeah, or evergreen. Or evergreen? Yeah. But what about in places like the tropics or whatever that mm-hmm. those trees never drop? Are those still deciduous? That's an interesting question. So there are certainly conifers in the tropics that mm-hmm. retain their leaves throughout the entire year, don't drop them on any sort of uh, regular cycle. There are actually conifers that do drop their leaves in the temperate zone. So for example, on our campus, we have this tree called a dawn redwood. And if you were to see it right now with all of its little needles, it would look like any other conifer to most oh. people. But in about a month, it's going to drop all of those leaves and it's just going to stand there naked all winter and it's going to look like any other tree that has dropped its leaves. So that it's not like an absolute rule that all conifers are evergreen and all broadleaf trees are deciduous. 
because there are lots of broadleaf trees that are also evergreen. Like we have some magnolias around here that will retain their leaves year round as well. But for the most part, it is probably most common for conifers to be evergreen. And it's more common for broadleaf trees to be deciduous. Then you asked about the tropics. Many trees, perhaps most trees in the tropics, are evergreen, meaning that they there's no particular season when they drop their leaves. Their leaves might just senesce and die kind of sporadically. Okay. However, there are still a few tropical environments as well as tropical species in lots of different environments that are deciduous. So there are tropical dry forests that are very seasonal where many of the trees will drop their leaves in the dry season mm. and then grow them again in the wet season. And then even in the wet tropical forests, there are some particular species that will drop their leaves at a certain time of year. And it's mm. it's actually very weird, like if you're flying over a tropical forest low enough so that you can see individual trees or or if you're viewing a forest canopy from an elevated position, it is kind of strange to see just this verdant carpet of green tree canopies and to see this one spindly leafless tree sticking up out of the middle of it at a certain hmm. time of year. And then you come back six months later and that tree is completely leafed out and it, hmm. it looks like everybody else. And so, yeah, it's but it's much more common in the temperate zone where we're situated for trees to be deciduous. Okay. Now, are we talking today specifically about only the color change or are we talking about why they drop leaves in general? So what I thought would be fun to talk about is the color change. Okay. What are the triggers that initiate this sequence of events that leads to the color change and what might be the functional significance, if any, of that color change? Okay. Because my question, I guess, would be, do conifer trees, well, here's my understanding, I think, of what deciduous trees do, is that during the spring and summer months, they put out their leaves, they're doing photosynthesis, they're getting all this energy. Mm -hmm. And I think you've told me before that they then are trying to store some of that as, you know, sugars and carbohydrates and stuff. And that that they send them down into the root system, basically. And then for the winter months, they drop their leaves because they're like, meh. I'm not getting a lot out of this anyway. It's too cold and the sun isn't up long enough for me to really get a lot of benefit from keeping these. Mm -hmm. And it takes too much energy for me to keep them than for me to just give up and and just hibernate for a little bit. And then in the spring, then they they are pumping the sugars back up to give them the energy to initially sprout everything. And then they continue the process, right? Yeah. And the damage, you kind of implied this trade-off with what you said, right? The damage that broad leaves would endure as a result of the cold and the wind of mm-hmm. the winter months is worse than just dropping the leaf and rebuilding a new one the next spring. Mm. And so, you know, consequently, many of the evergreen trees that we see, though, again, not all, but many of the evergreen conifers have those tiny little needles, mm-hmm. which are, you know, they're not like a flag being whipped around by the wind, right? Oh, uh, okay. And then they also tend to be a little bit more freeze resistant as well. So um, oh, because they're bundled up as a little needle like thing, then there's less surface area, basically, you're saying. Yeah, th- that's okay. part of it. And there are some other physiological reasons for that as well. Hmm. And so the, the fact that temperate trees that are deciduous drop their leaves as a result of changes in day length, mm-hmm. then immediately suggests that there must be some mechanism by which they are detecting day length. Yep. Okay. 
right? And so that's actually a pretty good trick if you think about it. I mean, we can detect day length because, you know, we have eyes and a watch. And so, you know, a month and a half ago when I was heading at home in the evening, the sun was still high on the horizon. But mm-hmm. now as I'm heading home every day, the sun seems to be a little bit lower, a little bit lower on the horizon. And mm-hmm. pretty soon I think it's going to start being dark by the time I'm heading home, right? So I've right. I've got eyes and a, and a clock on my wrist and in my car that I can mark that. Trees obviously don't have eyes, but they do have molecules that are photoreceptive that can keep track of this. And so maybe it would help to explain the concept of photoisomerization. Fine. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So large three-dimensional molecules often have different shapes that they can take on. And so it's the same atoms arranged in the same order. However, an isomer is a different shape that that arrangement of atoms in a certain order can take on. Hmm. And so it's possible to cause them to flip back and forth between these two different shapes. And sometimes one shape takes a little bit more energy to be produced, and then it might sort of relax back to the other shape. And there are all kinds of- some proteins, they can fold in different ways. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So these isomers are just long chains of molecules and they can fold. Mm-hmm. And so somehow it must be that if they're supposed to light, then they'll fold one way. And if and then after a while, they'll just relax back and go to the other one. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I mean, this is maybe a silly analogy that you can cut out, but like, If you think about your hand, right, you've got four fingers and a thumb arranged in a certain order. And if you splay your fingers out, that's one confirmation that that structure can take. Or you can sort of ball your fingers and thumb up into a fist. And that's another confirmation that it can take out. But they're all still the same parts in the same relative position to each other. It's just they have two different shapes. Okay. And one of those shapes takes a little bit more energy to maintain. And those two different shapes might functionally be different from each other. Like I can do things with a fist that I can't do with an open hand and vice versa. Okay. All right. So that's sort of like my hand as a model of two different isomers of what that thing can do. And Hmm. so there are several different molecules, photoreceptive molecules that plants have that the energy that causes them to shift between these two versions is photons. So that's why this is called photoisomerization. Okay. And as I suggested, that one shape might have one functional consequence and another shape might have a different functional consequence. So the consequence of one of these shapes of this photoreceptive molecule might be to turn on a cascade leading to the transcription and translation of genes that do things like build and maintain green leaves, build and maintain chloroplasts, build and maintain chlorophyll. Okay. All right. And so that might take, if a certain version of that photoreceptive pigment is around, the one that's been struck by a lot of photons, that will sort of maintain the foot on the gas for those genes, and it will keep the genes that are responsible for leaf senescence quiescent. Okay. But then when there is less and less and less light, there's less and less and less of this version of this photoreceptive molecule. Mm. And so then that kind of creates this taper where the genes for maintaining green leaves starts to get turned off and the genes for leaf senescence start to get turned on. Uh-huh. And so it's a pretty clever mechanism, you know, it's a molecule that responds to sun 
and that accumulation of having a sufficient amount based on how much day length it experiences kind of serves as this clock mechanism. All right. So you're saying that in order to keep in this one state of maintaining leaves and all that, I'm just going to make up a number. You need 10 units of this gene in this state. And maybe, you know, it'll decay every night. Maybe that amount decays a little bit, but then mm-hmm. the next morning you get enough of these that you it just keeps going. And so during the summer months, it's easy to just keep them going. But then as the days get a little bit shorter, then, then they're not getting that same signal as much and the decay rate overtakes it and they just don't have a lot of the, the signal to keep going. Yeah, that's succinctly put. And it it's more complicated than that. Of course, there are other things at play here, but that is at least a part of the story. And so that that helps us understand the why question of the what are the cues that kick this off is the changes okay. in daylight, daylight. So what about then what is the process that gets kicked off? And so for leaves to change color, what that implies is that there is some change in the pigments present in the leaves. And the leaf color that most people, of course, are familiar with is green. And you probably even know which pigment is responsible for that green color. Chlorophyll. Chlorophyll, yep. So most land plants have two versions of this molecule called chlorophyll. And if you look at the absorbance spectrum of chlorophyll, it absorbs photons that are in the purple through blue range. Okay. And then it absorbs photons that are in the orange through red range, but it reflects photons that are in the green, kind of that middle part of the visible spectrum. Okay. And so consequently, that's why most land plants have green appearing leaves is because that's the wavelength that they're reflecting. So that's chlorophyll. And chlorophyll is constantly breaking down and being reproduced kind of on this continuous cycle, as we just alluded to a little bit ago. And also in the leaves at the same time is this other category of molecule called carotenoids. These also have an absorbance spectrum, but they mostly absorb in the purple, blue, blue-green range. Okay. And then they reflect in the kind of the yellow-green end into the yellows and oranges. And so what that means is that if we had something that was just containing carotenoids, it'd be more like yellow through orange. Okay. And so like I said, both chlorophylls and carotenoids are constitutively produced by leaves, meaning that they're always there. And as the genes for maintaining chlorophyll start to get shut down, the chlorophyll starts to degrade and go away, which then reveals the carotenoids. And what so do the carotenoids do? Carotenoids play a couple of different roles. They're involved with the capture of some of that light energy that gets fed into the light reactions of photosynthesis. And uh-huh. they all also have a protective effect as an antioxidant because the the process of photosynthesis involves the energy of photons being used to split water apart. So it Uh liberates two hydrogen ions and then you have this reactive oxygen Mm. that eventually gets combined with another oxygen to make O2 gas that then escapes. But there for a brief moment, you've got a very reactive oxygen. And so, and that can be very damaging. Right. I mean, it's like oxyclean and stuff like that. If you've got oxygen loves to react with stuff. Mm -hmm. So you're saying within the cell, this is a free oxygen. And presumably, I guess it's got two electrons that were taken away by the hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And so it's ready to 
grab onto something else, anything else. Yeah. And so that's one of the roles of the carotenoids, as well as another molecule we'll talk about here in a moment. Okay. Yeah. And so the degradation of the chlorophyll, the green chlorophyll, then leaves behind the presence of these carotenoids. Hmm. And for some plants, that's the extent of it, right? So these would be plants that are mostly a nice yellow to orange color. So I'm thinking like aspen or something, a nice yellow color and and don't make a lot of the real deep reds. But some trees like maples are kind of the classic example of this, produce these deep orange to red colors. Mm -hmm. And that's another category of molecules called anthocyanins. Okay. And these are actually produced anew by these leaves during this process. It's a, a pigment which has an absorbent spectrum as well. And its absorbent spectrum peaks in the greens. And then it also absorbs a little bit in the blues into purple. And so okay. what that means is that the part of the spectrum that it reflects the most is the oranges into the reds. Okay. And so, you know, those classic pictures you see of New England in the fall with all the bright orange to deep red color leaves, those would be due to the anthocyanins that are being produced. Hmm. And so the particular function of the anthocyanins, one idea about it is that it, it might form sort of like a, a bit of a sunscreen by absorbing some of that light energy that might otherwise damage the plant. Mm -hmm. It might also have an antioxidant effect similar to the carotenoids. Another idea that I wasn't aware of until I was reading up a little bit more in preparation for this is that it might have the property of binding up toxic metals that could otherwise damage the plant. Okay. But yeah, so that, that's where the red colors come from as they get manufactured by the leaves at that time. So those are the pigments. And then, of course, the last thing that happens is those leaves eventually fall to the ground. Mm -hmm. And this is not just like an unorganized process. There's actually a plant hormone called abscisic acid. And so plants generally manipulate their own physiology based on chemical concentrations and gradients. So okay. they're, the plants produce signaling molecules that can get transported all throughout the plant. And how cells in the plant respond depends on the concentration of a given plant hormone. And so like a high concentration might cause those cells to do one thing, but a low concentration of the very same signaling molecule might cause the plant to do something else. And so concentration is really important as well as overlapping gradients of different molecules, right? So hmm. if molecule A has this effect and molecule B by itself might have this effect, but where they overlap, it might have yet a third effect. Okay. So yeah, so that's kind of how plants adjust their own internal physiology. And so this molecule called abscisic acid, one of the things that it does is it promotes leaf abscission, basically the severing of the petiole of the leaf from the stem to which it is attached. Mm -hmm. And so the cells start to toughen up on either side of where the leaf is going to detach. Okay. And then eventually the leaf falls away. And what's left on the stem where the leaf had been attached is a little leaf scar. You can find these very easily if you just look at a relatively young stem and you'll see where all the leaves had been attached. And that's where abscisic acid had its effect in the previous growing seasons. All yeah. right. And so, so then these leaves fall. Mm -hmm. I've always heard that there's still, you know, things in the leaves that it'll deteriorate and then sort of recycle to help the plant after a winter or whatever like that. Is is that a true thing? 
It's certainly true that there is still biomass that can be degraded by soil microbes that then liberate that biomass in a form that is usable by either the original plant that it came from or by other plants growing out of the soil. That's absolutely true. That's how I justify not raking the leaves in the fall mm. <laughs> in my yard. <laughs> I wish I could have justified that when I was growing up. We, <laughs> Our neighborhood had a bunch of adult oak trees and mm. my brother and I did our yard and a couple of the neighbor's yards and mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. My brother did yep. a good job with that, but <laughs> it was a lot of work. Yeah. And it would be dusty. You know, you're grinding up all these leaves, trying to pack them tighter, and then you're blowing your nose for days afterwards, just black mucus. Yeah. Oh, nice. But, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very vivid picture. Well, you're welcome. But I'm not convinced that that's like the adaptive significance of it. I mean, that's okay. part of the um, carbon and nutrient cycling to be sure, but that would happen whether or not the leaves turned these ridiculously bright colors. And that would also happen whether or not the trees were deciduous and all dropped them at once, hmm. as opposed to a situation sort of like the tropical trees we talked about, where they do drop their old dead leaves, they just sort of dribble them out somewhat continuously throughout their lifespan. Okay. Right. So there's there's constantly stuff falling to the ground, constantly degrading. So I I don't think that explanation of feeding the soil to feed yourself next year necessarily explains the deciduousness and the bright colors of deciduous trees. Okay. So, so what is what would be the adaptive value of doing this, of changing your colors and so forth? You know, <laughs> I thought that I was going to find a more satisfying answer. I mean, I'd, I'd heard various ideas about it through time. Mm-hmm. And in approaching this to prepare to talk about it today, I, I figured, well, you know, probably one of these ideas has been interrogated and has either been thrown out for something better or, you know, we've, we've probably got a pretty good handle on the evolutionary significance of leaf color change in the fall. Mm-hmm. And based on what I could tell from the literature, it's still an unresolved issue. And there are a lot of people who have theories about it and put forth articles about their particular take on it and their study system, it seems to be, this seems to be the thing at play. And other study systems, there seems to be other evolutionary reasons that might seem to be important. And so I thought I would just kind of go through some of the ideas as to the potential adaptive significance with the caveat that it's probably the case that maybe many of these are at play. And it doesn't have to be the case that these are mutually exclusive. All right. And so, I mean, for me, I, I would just say, oh, well, okay, you're taking away the chlorophyll. And so now what's left over? is this other stuff. And so I would say that basically the tree is like, all right, I'm going to stop producing certainly chlorophyll. It's probably stopped producing the other ones as well, I would guess, because it's saying, all right, we're now going to drop the leaves, right? So mm-hmm. so for me, it would just be like, okay, well, the chlorophyll may just degrade faster than carotenoids and anthocyanins and all the other things. But you're saying that there's potentially a better explanation than that. Well, I think that Your explanation is a great starting point, and I think it's the appropriate starting point for trying to tell an adaptive story about something. I mean, I think the starting point should be, is there even a story to tell? 
And as you mm. suggest, maybe they're just yellow because that's what's left over when it stops being a functioning leaf. Mm -hmm. And that, that certainly might be the case for some of them. But that might not explain why the plants would manufacture this new category of molecule, the anthocyanins. Oh, okay. So I didn't pick up right? on that. So you're saying that it, it stops making chlorophyll and it starts making this other one. Many plants do. The ones that make large amounts of anthocyanins, the chlorophyll maintenance genes taper off and the anthocyanin production genes ramp up. Hmm. And so at least for some plants, there is this investment in producing something hmm. that our eyes perceive as being this deep red color. And so is there a an adaptive significance to that deep red color that's produced? So some ideas about that, I already kind of alluded to this one earlier. One idea is that it might be a form of sunscreen because those anthocyanin pigments can absorb some of those photons that might otherwise damage the plant. And while it might be true that those anthocyanins are absorbing some photons, I'm not sure why it's a bad thing that a leaf that's going to be dead and gone in the next few days to weeks, like what's so essential about protecting that? If I ever go get a haircut, I'm not going to like spend a lot of resources to diet and then shave my head. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was thrown off. You said diet. And I was like, yeah, why would I ever diet? Why would I diet? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> why would I artificially color my hair and then shave it off? Dye space it. Got it. Okay. I was thinking like, so, why would I stop eating ice cream and then my, cut my hair? It's All okay. Right. Sorry. So I, I don't know. I personally don't find that to be a, a particularly satisfactory um, yeah. explanation. But, you know, there might be somebody who knows more about this who would argue with me about that. By writing in to crisscrossingsite.gmail.com. All one word, right. all lowercase. Yeah, you don't want to anger a botanist. I can tell you that. <laughs> Another idea is that the bright leaf colors might signal ripe fruits. And so for animals like bats and birds that eat a lot of brightly colored orange and red colored fruits, that bright red appearance on the landscape might be sort of a broader signal to those animals that there's ripe fruit to be had there. I don't find that one particularly satisfying either because maples don't make nice big fruits, right? They make those little helicopter things that swirl yeah. down to the ground. It's not like... And most fruit I don't know. trees that I think of produce the fruit and then later on they drop the leaves. So it's not like... Yeah, but there might be little tiny berries or something that you or I wouldn't be interested in eating, but that like a bird or a bat might regard as a, as a food item. And so, but I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't find this one particularly satisfying, uh, at least really broadly. Another interesting one that had some legs initially, but I think has fallen out of favor a little bit is the idea that this bright red pigment that is expensive to produce signals to potential herbivores, don't bother coming to eat me mm. because I have a lot of resources. Look, I can... I'm obviously personifying this, which I hate doing, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. And so a plant that can produce these bright red pigments is a plant that has a lot of resources that can also produce a lot of defensive chemistry. And so aphids then that cue in on that bright red signal and avoid those plants are thereby avoiding a plant that is well defended 
by the plant's own chemistry in favor of plants that are less well defended. So that's the idea that it might be a signal to potential herbivores to stay away. Another idea is that many herbivores are cryptically colored and blend into the green background of the leaves that they're surrounded by for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. And then this sudden color change to yellows and reds makes them really obvious and apparent to potential predators. <laughs> That's kind of a jerk move. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I mean, from the plant's perspective, you know, foiling the herbivore's camouflage would be a benefit to the plant. While that might be true that it has that effect, is that the driving evolutionary adaptive significance of it? I don't know. Another one that seems actually somewhat contrary a little bit to the the one where the leaves signal that the that the plant is in good shape is signaling to potential herbivores that these bright red leaves are on their way out and mm-hmm. are a poor and degrading resource. And so might signal stay away. This is not a good place to be. Another idea I came across is the idea that those bright colors might actually attract aphids, which then attract ants that in the next growing season will tend those aphids, but protect the plant from other herbivores. And that seems like a little bit of a house of cards there. You know, there's a lot of, if it does this, then it could also do this, which would then have this effect, right? There's right. there's a lot of links in that particular chain there. So even though this is the one that includes ants, uh, and I would <laughs> I would love it to be my favorite hypothesis, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that one. I mean, that brings us to overall, there are lots of different ideas about the functional significance of the color change. It might depend on the species that we're talking about and where we're talking about it. it might range from no explana- further explanation needed at all because it's just what's left behind as the leaf degrades hmm. to it might have these higher order ecological effects influencing how the plant interacts with other organisms in its environment, or it might benefit the plant's physiology in some way. So I would say it's still very much an open question. All right. We'll leave it at that. Leave it. (laughs) 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 Oh, I I do have a bonus question. Yeah. So we've talked about maple trees here, which made Mm -hmm. me think of maple syrup. Yes. Where you're basically, we're tapping into, it's trying to store its sugars and things down in the root system, Mm -hmm. getting ready for winter. Mm -hmm. And then it's, in the wintertime, it's shooting those back up to to get ready to, to grow. And that's, I think, when they harvest is the wintertime. Uh-huh. But I would think a lot of deciduous trees would do that. Yes? Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's probably just something about our perception of the flavors in the maple phloem that okay. is pleasing to us that others wouldn't like. For example, oak trees have a lot of tannins in them. Oh. And so I would guess oak phloem would probably not taste very good. Unless you're really into old red wine and stuff. Right, exactly. I may have you to like start your, a new company. Like your tongue to feel fuzzy. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for answering that bonus question too. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or questions about what happens in nature and why, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.